This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Gosselin, and Clark Judge. They are who we thought they were. The Talk of Fame Network is sponsored by Geico, which just 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com. You know what? You probably should have gone 15 minutes ago. As we mentioned, former Commissioner Paul Taglibu was one of two contributor candidates in this year's Hall of Fame class. Paul succeeded Pete Rozelle in 1989 and in his 17 years as commissioner oversaw a period of enormous growth in the league from the number of teams to new stadiums, minority hiring programs, player benefits, TV rights, and ultimately revenue and interest. He also presided over 17 years of labor peace, which is of course a rarity in today's professional sports world. And we caught up with him earlier this week from his office in Washington. Paul, first of all, thank you for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for having me. I mentioned a litany of your accomplishments. Just wondering, if you were to stand in front of the Hall of Fame Board of Selectors today, and you've got three of them here, what would you tell us was your greatest achievement? Well, I think the, uh, the greatest achievement, which involved a lot of the specific things that you mentioned, was coming in at a time when the league had was concluding a decade that was uh, pretty stagnant and uh, in the minds of some people kind of a lost decade and uh, you know that's not exactly my my term it was something that I had discussed with Pete Roselt as, as we got through the replacement games in 87 and as he was approaching retirement we, we talked quite a bit and he as he looked back on the decade it, it started out great with a great San Francisco uh, Cincinnati Super Bowl with a tremendous television rating but then it, it got a strike in 82 canceled seven games, then Raiders litigation, USFL litigation, replacement games in 87. So it was a decade of playing defense, you might say, and no offense, and very little growth. Television revenues were flat by the end of the decade. And I think my biggest accomplishment was coming in fresh, uh, although I had been involved you know, for 20 years as outside counsel, coming in fresh with a fresh group of owners. I think that was important. Jerry Jones, Norman Brayman, Pat Bowen, and others, uh, all were looking to uh, an era of growth, an era of innovation, an era of change, and we made the transition from you know what was in many ways a lost decade to a to a very positive decade, which was helped of course by television technology evolving. But I think the key thing was getting the labor agreement done with the players' association. So if I look back, that's the big picture, and a lot of the specific things are part of that uh, agenda. Paul, we're going to start throwing some hardballs here, so get your bat ready. <laughs> one of the reasons or one of the concerns with your candidacy that's come up in the room is California. The NFL went the final 12 years of your commissionership without a team in the nation's second largest city, Los Angeles. The three worst stadiums in the NFL were in, all in California, Oakland, San Diego, San Francisco. Baseball got new stadiums built in San Diego and San Francisco, but football could not. What happened in California? Well, in California, it was a big disappointment for me, and uh, it was a disappointment for, for Pete Roselle before me, and finally, uh, some of it's been resolved uh, in the last, um, you know, 12 months. But it, it began with uh, Cal Rosenblum moving out of the Coliseum, going to Anaheim in 78. Then uh, there were other team moves, Colts and the Cardinals, and uh, then we had the Raiders move, and lit litigation that went on for probably three years. So so the whole the context of addressing the issues was not a positive one, let's put it that way. Yeah. The, the Rams had been the heart and soul of the league's presence in, in L.A., and, and now they were in Anaheim, which
California, not L.A. And then the litigation soured a lot of relationships, and not only you know within the league, but uh, within the community. There were pro Raiders people, anti Raiders people, but uh, you know we we worked very hard. We got the Hollywood Park deal done in 1995 after the Rams moved, and you know I had been hearing, we all had been hearing that the Rams and the Raiders did not want to share the greater L.A. market. So after the Rams moved to St. Louis, we put together a, a group of owners and club executives and negotiated a deal for a stadium in Hollywood Park, which was for the Raiders and for a second team if there was ever an NFC replacement team to come into the market. That thing got done. It was approved by the league's finance committee. And then on the day that it was supposed to be announced, uh, Al Davis called me and said he had second thoughts. He wasn't going to go forward with the deal. He was going back to Oakland. That was a huge disappointment for everybody. And uh, after that, we... Uh, we didn't get anything done in Los Angeles. We tried some things with News Corp when it owned the Dodgers and, and had control of Chavez Ravine. We worked with uh, Mayor Reardon at various times. We worked with Mayor Vigorosa. But that was just one piece of the puzzles. I think the biggest issue in San Diego and San Francisco is the difference between what a football stadium costs and the kind of space it needs and, and a baseball stadium. Uh, football stadiums were then and still are much bigger footprint that's required for the stadium and for the parking and, and the ancillary mass transit for a football stadium is a lot more expensive than for a baseball stadium. We learned that all over the country. Some of our stadium issues got started in the wake of baseball stadiums being built in cities like Baltimore and Cleveland when football stadiums couldn't get built. So it's not just California where you see the pattern of uh, baseball having an advantage. The biggest advantage is playing 81 games and having a building that's usable for lots of other events. It's smaller, it's better for concerts, it's better for other events. So ultimately, we, we addressed the stadium issues at the league level by putting that cost-sharing formula in place in 1999, which led to the, state, the new stadiums in New England, Philadelphia, Denver, Detroit, and other places. We tried to make that work in San Francisco and San Diego, but we never could make it work. And uh, some of the issues had to do with costs that were unique to California, including earthquake proofing of stadiums, which was an issue in the Bay Area in particular. Uh, other advantages that baseball had is that you can put them into entertainment districts, which they did in San Diego, and you and you have financing arrangements that you don't have when you when the team is outside of an entertainment district. So there are lots of factors and a lot of work, but bottom line is we didn't get done in California what we were able to get done in, in virtually the entire rest of the country. Paul, i got a couple of questions for you about what I know a lot of people think is one of the major issues that's going to have to be uh, addressed when we talk about your candidacy, which is concussions and the history of the league during your tenure. In December of 1994, during a panel discussion at the 92nd Street Y in New York uh, that also included NBA Commissioner David Stern, NHL Commissioner uh, Gary Bettman, yours truly in the audience, and uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Halberstam, I think was the moderator, as I recall. And uh, he asked you about the issue, and you said famously, on concussions, I think is one of those packed journalism issues, frankly. There is no increase in concussions. The number is relatively small. The problem is a journalist issue. Since then, 94 of the 96 brains examined by Boston University's Medical Center have come up football players has been, has been littered with CTE. Do you regret those remarks, and what would you say today if asked the same question? You know, obviously I do regret those remarks. Looking back, it was uh, 
not it was not sensible language to use to express my thoughts at the time. Uh, my language was intemperate, and it led to serious misunderstanding. I, I, I overreacted on issues where we, which we were already working on, but that doesn't excuse the overreaction and the intemperate language. Uh, you know, bottom line, it sounded like I was shooting the messenger rather than dealing with the message, which was the concussion issue. So, you know, my intention at the time was to make a point that it could have been made fairly simply, that there was a need for better data, there was a need for more reliable information about concussions, uniformity in terms of how they were being defined, in terms of severity. Reporting from the clubs was inadequate at that time. And bottom line was we needed to improve the system we had. You couldn't draw firm conclusions based on what we had. But like I say, I overreacted and uh, made it appear like I was shooting the messenger, which was a mistake. That same year, of course, you appointed uh, a rheumatologist, Dr. Elliot Perlman, as head of the uh, Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee. Uh, he later would become your personal physician for a number of years, uh, as I understand it, but he was not at that time. And Dr. Pellman repeatedly attacked research into the concussion issue. He downplayed it. He dismissed it. Uh, he was the author or co-author of nine of 16 NFL-supported papers published in Neurosurgery, the leading scientific journal on the issue. Uh, all minimizing the effects of concussions and several attacking the work of Dr. Ben Amalo, who, of course, is the first guy to find CTE, the brain of Mike Webster. He had no training in neurology. He had no real knowledge of concussion research. I'm just wondering why you would appoint such a person, because I, as a lawyer, I just wonder if, if you heard that I was forming a panel, for example, on tax law, and I named a divorce lawyer as its chairman, what would you think of me? You know, frankly, I, I think it, it might be sensible. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish with the committee and what you're trying to accomplish in the larger context. And uh, what we were trying to accomplish as we uh, got into 94, 95, when I, uh, we had a panel starting in 93, and then we had the subcommittee that uh, Dr. Pellman chaired. What we were trying to do was address rules. We were trying to arrest, address enforcement of rules. We were trying to address responsibilities, responsibilities of doctors, team physicians, owners, general managers, coaches, players, and we were trying to set a framework for research. I felt that a very important aspect of that was that we had to change the culture. And in many ways, the culture started with the team physicians, and it was improving. When I became commissioner in 89, I had, I had been approached by the president of the NFL Physician Society, who told me there was a tremendous increase in the quality of team physicians, and they, and they wanted to work to get clo more closely together with each other and more closely with the league. So uh, in part, I was focused on the role of the team physicians, and we had not just Dr. Pellman, but we had uh, uh, Dr. Tucker, we had Dr. Bergfeld, we had Dr. Wackerly. We had a number of team physicians involved in those efforts because it was my view that if things were going to change, they had to, it had to be internal organic change to be real. If we, if we just ignored the status quo and the, the attitudes that existed in the culture at that time and tried to change it from outside, there would be a lot of pushback and we wouldn't succeed. Dr. Pellman came to my attention after Al Toon retired and after Dennis Bird was injured, which was basically you know, the same weekend back in late November 1992. Right. And Al Toon, when Al Toon retired, Dr. Pellman was part of the Jets group of physicians who recommended that he retire because of repeat concussions, and they told him what he said publicly, that repeat concussions could have long-term negative effects 
and you should retire. And after that, after those two episodes with the Jets, the Altoon retirement and uh, the Dennis Bird injury, I got a call from Leon Hess, the owner of the Jets, who told me that their team physician was a person who I should get involved in these issues of head, neck, and spine injuries because he was a hard worker, he was highly intelligent, he was a good organizer, and he could work effectively with coaches and players, and he was willing to stand up for the medical point of view and not be cowed. So I put him in charge knowing you know, what his specialties were, but in a lot of contexts, I've been chairing the board at Georgetown University, I've been involved in governance in a lot of organizations. I think, I, I think that the chairman of a committee needs to be able to work with people, he needs to be able to recruit people, he needs to, he needs to identify the special knowledge, like you say, tax law, divorce law, that's, that's being addressed. But he does not necessarily have to be uh, a specialist in that particular area. If he has other qualities and other skills that are supportive of what you're trying to accomplish, you know, the fact that he became my team, my personal physician later had not a single thing to do with any decisions about Dr. Pellman or anyone else. It was purely based on the track record that these men had with their teams and what I thought they could help us accomplish with internal change. As you know, when, when we started enforcing the, the rules on hits of quarterbacks and defensive, defenseless players with Mark Carey and Chuck Cecil and other players, there was a lot of pushback. I remember criticizing who the hell are the suits in New York who are telling us how to play football. <laughs> they're, they're, they're making it into touch football instead of tackle football. So there was a culture. People like Bill Walsh had talked to me about the culture. They've got to get the culture away from this mentality that, that the game's all about hitting and, and get it with a focus on skill and speed and preparation. So like I say, uh, we, we, were, we were trying to create a system where we would address rules in collaboration with the Players Association, because by 93 we finally had a labor agreement, rules, responsibilities, and research. And I felt that over time, you know, the key was publishing reports publicly in peer-reviewed journals, the purpose of which is to stimulation, discuss, to stimulate discussion, stimulate criticism. If you don't get criticism when you're doing cutting-edge research, you're probably not asking the right questions and not addressing the cutting-edge issues. So there's a complex set of uh, issues there, but uh, I felt overall we, we were in the forefront, and Dr. Pellman and his team were the first ones who put together biomechanical ways of an analyzing concussions, which were similar to the automobile test dummies that are used in the automobile industry, where you can simulate helmet-to-helmet -helmet collisions. And, and we, we made a video of those biomechanical things, which was prepared by the university in Canada and a firm in Canada, and we showed it, we showed it at a league meeting, because what was needed most of all was data. You know, we would, whether we had 100 incidents a year or 1,000 incidents a year, we needed tens of thousands. And, Mass data is key to that kind of research. So a lot of things were done, I think, were positive. Certainly there were some things that turned out to be not so positive. But on balance, I thought that that group did a lot of good work. Hey, Paul, we're nearly out of time, but I've got one question I want to ask you moving on to TV networks. In, in 1992, CBS and NBC convinced uh, TV committee chairman Art Modell that they were losing money on NFL football. So as I best I recall, and Art negotiated a rebate of something like $238 million. And, and you endorsed that deal, and it would have cost each team, I think, $8.5 But the new guard of owners, as I recall at least then, mustered enough votes to stop that deal. And then, of course, Fox got involved, and the money in the next contract uh, escalated almost, I think, by a billion dollars. Where, where was the miscalculation on the part of the league then? Well, I think there were two things, basically, that drove the idea of uh, – maybe three things that drove the idea of uh, 
at GiveBack in 92. The first was that when we negotiated those contracts, we got huge increases out of the networks because we created competition that had not existed before. And what I mean by that is previously, you know, Pete Rozell had a deal which included like five ESPN games from 87 through 89. We brought Turner into the mix and we brought ESPN into the mix. And, th and between them, they took a whole season of games on Sunday nights. But the key thing was that now we had competition between two cable systems, and that in turn created competition for the broadcast network. So we got huge increases. Second thing that happened was there was a recession in 91, and the projections that the networks were using in terms of ad revenue were falling way below the projected you know, economy that resulted from the recession. Part of the recession had to do with the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. So the networks paid a, paid a lot. Their projections turned out to be wrong in terms of where the economy went. And the third factor was, as you remember, we had negotiated a deal, four-year deals with the networks where there were, in the first two years, there were going to be 16 games over 17 weeks with one right. buy for each team, which was the first time the buy week concept had been put into the, into the scheduling. And then for the second two years, in order to help the networks make up the big money as it escalated under the contract, we were supposed to do 16 games over 18 weeks with two buys. And we decided that that was a mistake because it thinned out the schedule too much. By having two buys over an 18-week schedule, you ended up with too many weeks where there, where there was not enough tonnage, if you want to call games tonnage, in, in the Sunday afternoon schedule in particular. So we... We jettisoned the idea of going to 18 weeks, so we basically took away from the networks another week of revenue. So all of those factors came together, and we could see that if we, you know, bit the bullet for two years, took a relatively modest deduct, that we knew News Corp was around the corner because News Corp had talked to Roselle in '87, uh, and News Corp had talked to me and Modell and Pat Boland, who was moving into a prominent position on television by '89, '90. We knew they were going to be there. So whatever dip we had, we thought would be short-term and modest compared to what we knew was going to happen, what we expected to happen in 93 going forward with Fox in the picture. That was a summary of, sort of of the context. I haven't even mentioned 9-11 to you, but was deciding what to do there and, and then the most difficult task you faced in your tenure? Well, it was certainly the most traumatic for everybody, not just for Paul Tagliabue. It was traumatic for the country. It was particularly traumatic for the families that lost uh, family members, for the cities that, uh, you know, were direct targets, whether it was uh, central Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., or New York. So the trauma and the uh, idea that a civilian aircraft could be made into an intercontinental ballistic missile and attack the United States in three different locations, that, that was very, very difficult. Reaching the decision stop playing football, you know, it, it was difficult because it was in the midst of trauma. That I mean, the biggest trauma was two of our employees lost their spouses. Other employees had kids working in lower Manhattan. Uh, but it, it, to me, the, I, the need to cancel the games was fairly obvious. And then it, I think it became obvious to everybody when the Giants and Jets players, especially the Giants players, started to tell us, how the hell can we practice to play on Sunday when we can look across the Hudson River to lower Manhattan and see smoldering towers, you know, smoldering from destroyed towers. We can't do it. Jets players, Wayne Corbett and others told us that their neighbors, whether it was in Long Island or Staten Island, families were destroyed because people were dead, you know. So making that decision, I think, was the right decision and not that complicated except for the traumatic 
environment that existed and, and still exists in the memory of everyone affected. Okay, and, and then lastly, what would the gold jacket mean to you? Well, you know, it would be, it would be very important to me because I, I dedicated 37 years of my life to this enterprise, which I have tremendous respect and love for. And, uh, you know, I, when I started practicing law in 1969, I had no idea I was going to do NFL work. I didn't ask for it. I was supposed to go to work for Procter & Gamble, and for personal reasons, I delayed my arrival at the firm, and I ended up working on Pete Rozelle's decision to tell John Namath he had to sell bachelor's three, otherwise he couldn't play football. <laughs> and so, you know, I started there. I started working with Rozelle on the Kirk Flood litigation, where he was a witness. And, you know, I have been an athlete my whole life, went to Georgetown on a basketball scholarship. So it was like... No, a dream come true to be able to do legal work for a great organization with a great leader like Pete Rozelle. And then to have the team of people we put together, you know, the people I inherited from Rozelle, the Val Pinchbecks of the world, and many, many others, and the people we brought in, Harold Henderson and, uh, and Neil Austrian and, you know, Brian Rolap, who's still around today, and, and Art Shell and, you know, Mike Haynes and Gene Washington. We brought in players in ways that hadn't been done before. So I think we had a phenomenal team, and it was a team game at the league office just as much as it is on the football field. And whatever we accomplished, it's not about Paul Tagley, but it's about the whole team of people. And I think me having a gold jacket would be tremendous recognition for hundreds of employees who did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. I was talking to Harold Henderson yesterday, and I, I could just get that feeling. I had one last quick question for you, uh, if you could recall this story for our listeners, Paul. You know, Al Davis is a longtime pal of mine, and I know when you first got in as commissioner, of course, the labor issue was raw, and there were still many, many problems. And my understanding was he called you pretty early on and gave you some advice about how to deal with Gene Upshaw and how not, but maybe how not to deal with Gene Upshaw as well. Could you sort of recall for us that conversation? You know, I think he called me up the day after I got the job in Cleveland, or a couple of days after, and he said two things. He said, number one, I saw in the newspaper you went to St. Michael's High School in Union City, New Jersey, and graduated in 1958. Did you know that I spoke at their athletic banquet in 1957 at that school? <laughs> I said, no, I had no idea. But we had we had guys in my class who I played basketball with who who were drafted in the NFL, Lou Cordleone being one of them. But on the, on the Gene Upshaw thing, in the same conversation, I think it was, Al said, look, we're going nowhere with the Players Association, we being the owners. We got a got a committee which is beating them up, you know. And he was talking about uh, you, you call Rouse and Texram and some people who were pretty tough negotiators. And it, and it it gotten pretty nasty in '87 with the replacement games across the board. He said Gene Upshaw is the greatest offensive lineman who's ever played the game, and great offensive linemen learn from the first time they put on a helmet that if if the defensive player slaps you in the head, you slap him back in the head twice as hard. Head slapping is not something you take from defensive players without slapping them twice as hard. And what the owners have been doing since 82 and now in 87, slapping this guy in the head. And it's going to get him nowhere other than he's going to slap him back twice as hard, which is what he's been doing. <laughs> and so stop slapping him in the head. <laughs> Sit down with him, have, go to dinner, have a drink, and get to know him and respect him. He'll respect you. You played sports. He played sports. But you're never going to get anywhere by slapping him in the head other than to have your own headache because he'll slap you back twice as hard. It was very good advice, and it happened to be consistent with my own way of doing things. You know, I think that you, the challenge we had was to listen to each other and see where we could agree 
and, and what was important. And Gene, had play, having played the game as many years as he did, he knew what it took to have good football teams. He was not going to destroy good football teams. He was, he was going to do it in a different way with free agency and a salary cap, but he was not going to destroy the quality of the game. That was the last thing he would ever do. So once you understand that, then the challenge is to figure out what's the new system that works and keeps the game as great as it is and as great as it's become. So Al, you know, Al and I had our differences along the way, but particularly in the labor context, we often learned a lot from each other. Paul, we're going to run, but uh, thanks so much for the time and your patience, and best of luck this weekend with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Well, thanks very much again for having me. I appreciate it. That was Hall of Fame finalist Paul Tagliabue. This is the Talk of Fame Network.